Hello, and welcome to the Biology Society of South Australia podcast, bringing you stories and conversations about all things biology in our state. I'm your host, Tori Love. Australia has one of the highest losses of species anywhere in the world. Our rate of extinctions is expected to continue on the same trajectory due to ongoing land clearance, habitat degradation, continued pressure from feral species, and climate change. However, arid recovery is rewriting the narrative by applying innovative technologies and testing ecosystem recovery techniques to ensure the longevity of endangered species across the outback. At the helm of this is CEO and Manager of the Reserve, Dr Catherine Tuff. Kath is not only an accomplished conservation ecologist, but a pillar in the success of arid recovery and a powerhouse woman leading the charge. So join us in the spotlight with Kath Tuft. Welcome, Kath, and thank you so much for taking your time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. Oh, I'm very happy to. <laughs> I just want to get started. If you just want to tell us a little bit more about yourself and what exactly you do. Yeah. Uh, so I found my way through biology, ecology, uh, into conservation, and pretty quickly out of finishing my degree, started working in remote places, which uh, got me hooked. I, I came out of Sydney, but I'm not looking back there. <laughs> so yeah, I'm really happy to be out in the desert, um, working on real practical challenges and and really bringing that interface of, of science and, and testing and building that evidence base for, for then making practical change on mm-hmm. the ground and, and measuring the effects as we go along. And some of that work has to be really long term. Some of it's more, uh, it's quicker and you get results faster and, and that's pretty exciting, but all of it's moving towards a, a good end. So it's really satisfying. Yeah. Is that what attracted you to rangeland ecology to start with? Yeah, I guess I, I just want to be where the action is, where we can have the most impact. Uh, and I really like working with small teams mm-hmm. as well and, and diverse collaborators. So we, we work with land managers and, and traditional owners mm-hmm. uh, and then a whole lot of academic uh, and students as well. So yeah, it's just, it's good fun. And when you get lots of different minds coming together from different perspectives, you come up with some neat solutions. Yeah. So in your role as manager of Arab Recovery, what, I know it's very dynamic, there's probably a lot that goes on day to day. Well, how would you describe maybe like average day, average week? Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I, I manage the organisation itself. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of, um, uh, I have to be across the, the human resources side of things and managing the team and, mm-hmm. and giving them the support that they need and, and development opportunities and so on. Uh, and then there's, we have a range of partners. So we're we're supported by four major partners, one of which is BHP, also the um, the state government, Adelaide Uni, and lately Bush Heritage. So managing all of those relationships uh, at different levels in those organisations is a large part of what I do. I've also learned heaps about communicating, so <laughs> getting practice doing things like podcasts and getting on the radio and getting our stories out through social media and so on. That's a big part of what we do. Uh, and then face-to-face as well. We do events, uh, so sometimes... We're out there with kids. We've got a, an ambassador snake, a woma python we take out to, uh, to connect people with snakes and break down some of the barriers about those animals. Mm-hmm. So uh, we do programs like that with kids and adults alike. Uh, and then there's plenty of just grunt on the ground. Like um, you know, I have a land management officer who looks after a lot of that and, and volunteers that are really helpful. But sometimes we're, we're all out there fixing the fence or doing whatever needs doing. Absolutely. All hands on deck. Mm-hmm. So, Arid Recovery has existed for about 23 years, is that right? That's right. And 
it has significantly progressed ecosystem restoration and conservation of threatened species through this concept that people call like a living laboratory. Could you like discuss a little bit about this concept and how you think it has allowed for the application of testing and I guess assisted evolution? Yeah, so I guess it, it all starts with recognising there's so much we don't know about ecology and, and how we can influence it for conservation. So the the concept of the Arid Recovery Reserve is very experimental mm. and wherever we can it's established so that we can test and compare. So one of the key things that allows us to do that is there's six different paddocks uh, separated by different types of fencing and then we can apply different treatments into them. So, uh, And, you know, sometimes the purposes we're using paddocks for now aren't anything that was imagined back 20 years ago. We've adapted and retrofitted and, and so on. But uh, I guess one example of how we do that is we've turned over one of our paddocks to actually release cats back into it. Mm-hmm. And we're doing that because we recognise that a lot of these prey species, these animals that have gone locally extinct, did so very rapidly when cats and foxes first invaded. And because they're... Um, they, they didn't have much time to spend together getting to know each other. <laughs> We're now introducing them in a controlled condition, so we manage the numbers of cats in there, and, and we're trying to accelerate that evolution and selection for predator-aware traits and, and other traits that might help them to survive with cats without a fence one day. So mm-hmm. it's a pretty long-term vision, and mm-hmm. we're seeing some you know, lovely little nuggets of, of hope in there where there is behavioural change, but it could be many more generations and, and different tactics before we get there. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's one of the things that we can do with that experimental setup. What species so far are you seeing that are having these behavioural changes? Yeah, the, the most promising one is the bilby. Mm-hmm. So we've seen a level of behavioural change in terms of them recognising cats as a threat over other controls like rabbits or buckets, I think is our usual <laughs> method of uh, a not a cat control. Uh, and then most importantly, when we've released bilbies that have been exposed to cats and bilbies that are naive from cats into a a new space where there are cats, Mm. the bilbies that have had cat exposure survive better. They did ultimately all die in that experiment, but they survived for longer, which was a a little nugget of hope that it will make a difference. Uh, We've seen some changes for bettongs as well, burrowing bettongs in the macropod family. Um, They've probably got a bit further to go. (laughs) If you've ever met a bettong, you probably understand why. They're smart enough, but... um, they're so social, I think, that uh, they seem to be more geared towards working with each other and competing mm. with each other, and uh, they're not so savvy to, to threats. <laughs> so. That's something I definitely noticed when I visited our recovery in 2018. There was, mm. a, there was this kind of big success of the Betong, and they were very social and, like, around camp, but I know recently their population has declined a bit. Mm. Um, what do you think has contributed to that? Yeah, so the um, – well – Betongs are super successful animals. They're, they're real generalist herbivores. They'll eat anything, uh, including meat, if they can get their hands on it. And so they're, they're very good survivors. And in the absence of predators, when they're put into a predator-free reserve, they can breed up to really high numbers, and, and they exceeded their carrying capacity uh, by quite a margin, which was a real issue for the vegetation most of all, but also for some of the other species there. Uh, so we saw a a drop in some of the fruit-loving birds uh, as the betongs uh, enjoyed all of that vegetation and made it scarce, um, and the stick nest rats too, which are fussier herbivores, they suffered. Uh, but then, well, we, we were working on a number of strategies to address the issue, uh, and then the drought of 1819 came along, and that 
kind of sorted out the battles. So not not an ideal scenario and something that we've got to learn from and we don't want to ever have that happen again. <laughs> so, yeah, so now now our battle populations are at well below carrying capacity and we'll make sure we can keep them at sustainable levels. Uh, and we're hoping that the quolls we introduced a few years ago are going to help us do that as predators. They do eat bettongs and uh, we're getting some work done to try to understand how well they regulate populations of prey in the reserve. So, yeah, mm-hmm. interesting times. I guess that kind of feeds into the, the application of like adaptive management seeing these circumstances happen and being like, how can you react mm. to them and apply different ways to solve those challenges? Do you find that now you're leading towards more of a focus on like climate change and how you're reacting to climate change? Seems yeah. It's like such a big elephant in the room. Currently. Totally. Yeah, no, it's very much our focus now. Our, our science advisory panel went yesterday and we're, we're talking a lot about climate change research angles and how we can best serve the you know, the questions and the, the challenges that are emerging. So uh, I guess you know, climate change is a massive threat to biodiversity, but it's also in a, you know, a, a narrower focus looking at the rangelands. There's some, you know, we're already seeing some impacts to the rangelands in terms of loss of kinopod plants, mm-hmm. which are dependent on winter rainfall, much of which is, is shifting to summer rainfall in our region. Um, and then other long-lived plants like mulga trees, uh, are showing some signs of die-off. So we're hoping to at least understand those trends and, and predict what we might see and what that means for all the land users in the rangelands, mm-hmm. whether it's pastoralists or traditional owners or mm-hmm. parks and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're also looking at how you manage safe havens, these fenced reserves or islands perhaps in, in climate change conditions. One of the things we found in the drought is that animals that would naturally have dispersed across really big landscapes to find those little refugia where there was water or food um, couldn't because they were fenced. So we were trying to simulate those little refuge patches by adding water and food in different ways for them. So we want to do more work there, experimenting with, with how you can sustain those populations. And we're playing with heat refuges too because we know some of the species suffer in extreme heat during the heat waves, especially those that nest above ground. Uh, so we're having a play with different ways we can help prevent them from suffering in the heat waves, artificial refuges, that type of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. That is fascinating. Could you maybe explain a little bit more about, like, heat refuges and, like, how they come about? Yeah, so there's been some good work done all over the place. There's some folks that have done nice work on birds and looking at how they use old-growth trees as refuge from the heat. Uh, and our inspiration came from the plight of the stick nest rats, and there are a native rodent, they nest above ground in these fabulous stick castles that they build themselves, but it does leave them really exposed to extreme heat, and uh, we've, we're already experiencing more heat waves than we used to, and I think within 50 years we'll have 66 days of the year or something will be 40 degrees or more, which Holy is hell. a little bit terrifying. <laughs> uh, so it's, you know, it's quite possible that animals like stickies don't have a future in the hotter parts of the rangelands, but we'd like to understand where that limit is uh, and where we can actually tip the balance a bit. So we've been playing with like rock piles as structures to keep them cool. One of um, the students at Adelaide Uni has been measuring the, the temperature profiles in those and in beton burrows that we know stickies use. And lately I've been working with a, a ceramic artist mm-hmm. to make um, ceramic tunnels, like little terracotta pipes that stick nest rats could use to go underground but without having to compete with betongs or in places where there may not be other animals' burrows for them to get down. So we're having a play around with that sort of stuff. And it's it's pretty niche. Mm. Uh, it's not something you could do broad scale across yeah. the landscape. 
but it might have application for reintroductions of these species into places where it's going to get hot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess this is on like a like a, a smaller scale. And if we're talking about in comparisons to the whole rangelands, how do you think that you could maybe apply these techniques outside of the reserve? Yeah, I think once you once you're looking on that bigger picture, it's all about finding refuges mm. and trying to protect or enhance them. Um, and different species will need different types of refuges. Um, mountainous places where there's topographic complexity will provide um, a bit of thermal refuge because there's rocky spots mm-hmm. and they'll also provide some, usually they'll provide food and water refuges because they tend to retain a bit more moisture and vegetation. So it'd be about leaning into that, recognising those places and protecting them from the usual threats. So keeping out the feral herbivores, keeping out or reducing the feral predator issues and um, and managing weeds and that sort of thing so that you're just enhancing the resilience of the landscape. And mm. I think for, for a lot of places across big areas, that's about as much as we'll be able to do. Yeah. Do you think that also that this approach to science is able to fuel into like more so policy and like government management? Because like, when we look at species recovery, less than 40% actually of species actually have a recovery plan, so there is so much to be done. What do you think needs to be done differently? And like, Yeah, well, <laughs> I think it's all about resourcing when it comes down to it, and mm-hmm. there, there just simply isn't enough funding going into species protection uh, and restoration. Um, but the, you know, the folks working in state and federal uh, departments for for the environment, they do what they can with what they've got, yeah. and and the science that supports it, uh, a lot of the time is used. So a, an example I can think of recently, we've been involved in supporting some research into the kawari, which is a species of small predator in the quoll family, and it currently only lives in the Gibber Plains of North Eastern South Australia and Southwest Queensland, uh, and it was identified as an animal that could do with protection from cats and foxes in a safe haven. Um, because it's declining in the wild and that work that we've we've been involved in in identifying that was picked up by the, the federal government and that species was put on a priority list for protection like that and, and now they've announced some funding for doing so. So in the next couple of years we'll be putting kawaris into the reserve at Arid Recovery. Hi there, this is the podcast editor Adam here. Excuse the interruption but I thought that everyone would like to know that the kawari, which is the native dazurid marsupial that Kath has been talking about in this episode, has since been successfully translocated to Arid Recovery Reserve. So if you'd like to keep up with how the kawari are getting on, I recommend that you follow the Arid Recovery Facebook page and their other social media channels. Right, back to the episode. So it's those sorts of jigsaw pieces when they come together mm-hmm. and and when scientists and land managers communicate it to people working on policy, mm-hmm. uh, it, it helps them to build the evidence base and justify where they put that scarce conservation dollar. But ultimately, we need more dollars. Absolutely. Do you find that having the collaborators like BHP is yeah. helping, like, in terms of our recovery resources? Absolutely. I mean, we, we would not be here without the support of BHP and our other partners. Mm-hmm. So they... They were able to give us consistent funding that covers all our core costs and means that we can then 
seek extra grant funding and um, collaborators and so on to do all of that science. Mm. Uh, and it, it's an unusual model. It's not often that a, a mining company supports projects in this way. So mm. we're, we're really fortunate and, and very appreciative of that. Uh, and we're hoping that as we as we go on, we'll be able to track more partners on top of that solid base and um, do more good stuff. Yeah, and that's what I think is really unique and special about our recoveries. It's such a unique model outside of like the academic system that it's like we have this real like applied ecology that is not purely funded by it is partly funded by an academic institution but it's like you're managing and directing where the research is going yeah um something i've noticed is that our recovery has such a large percentage of female scientists and that's something i'm quite passionate about compared to like about 28% in academia. What do you think like sets our recovery apart um, from not only academia but other NGOs yeah. in similar positions? I mean, I think there's a general trend for women to be more interested in environmental science and conservation. So you certainly see it um, you know, in student uh, cohorts and so on. There's, there's definitely more women interested in the field. Mm. Uh, but then I, I guess at our recovery... A large part of it is you know, the leadership of our principal scientist, Catherine Mosby, who's been part of the program forever and one of the founders. And yeah, she's um, she's a total powerhouse and pumps out work and <laughs> comes up with some very cool, innovative ideas. So I think she's a great inspiration uh, and a support that, that really pushes students' heart. And a lot of women are drawn to working with her. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, we support anyone that wants to come and do interesting work and and be part of it so yeah it's happened organically mm. but it's something we're pretty proud of yeah <laughs> so, absolutely yeah, it's good uh, to see where everyone then goes on to do mm. interesting stuff with other other organizations or to go back into academia and mm-hmm. yeah take that some of that spirit and and experience with them mm. do you think that um being i guess more so applied ecology and field based that it's like there's less of that kind of you know um, bias towards, I guess, males and academia that's institutionalised within these big universities that it's, like, based on merit and more so how hard you're working and how hard you're driven compared to, like, if you're a, a male or a female. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, perhaps, the, you know, the, the incentive structure is different, so you know, it, it isn't that competitive grants process and mm. impact factors and all of that. Um, anyway, I'll, I guess our, our incentives are driven by answering key conservation questions mm-hmm. and, and then measuring how effective they are mm-hmm. when we apply those new techniques on the ground. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that's, I guess, a, it's a different structure and it's based on a different structure of merit too. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel like, there's, like there was a paper recently that was talking about how that we shouldn't just promote people and like the structure of merit shouldn't just be purely on like publications it should be more so like this kind of holistic concept of like science communication and the ability to have different skills and I feel like that's something that our recovery kind of shows quite well that it's like you do you work as you were speaking about earlier like more about the communication and like the working with um local communities and engaging in different areas can you talk a bit about um how our recovery works with the local community yeah yeah no and i think that like that roundedness is really important as as scientists as well as you know land managers and others working in the space it's uh 
you know, we can't work in silos. <laughs> and the merits of being a small organisation is that you really can't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so everyone has a has a sense and of what other people are doing and, and contribute to the, the different aspects of the work. So, yeah, so I, I really enjoyed having that, that breadth mm-hmm. and, and the team really gets to build their skills and, and round, it, round out their experience. So, yeah, we, we have a whole range of programs where we... Um, we do a lot with the kids locally and in the region. So we host several school camps a year and go into classrooms and so on. And, and we try to work with the teachers on what they're doing with their curriculum. So, for example, oh, a couple of weeks ago, our land management officer, Nathan, went into the, the library where they had a program for primary school age kids where they were designing stuff. Mm-hmm. And their challenge was to design a predator-proof fence. So they had paddle pop sticks and blue tack and all sorts of stuff and came up with some funky ideas. And uh, and Nathan brought his own little model of the fence and, and talked about how it works and, and what doesn't and so on. And the best thing out of that was that apparently cats hate cucumbers, so we should build a fence out of cucumbers. <laughs> oh, I don't know how that would go in the heat. Not so climate-ready. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we do that and... Um, we um we try to reach a broad audience through social media and uh, I guess get people thinking about uh, beyond just here's a cute fluffy thing mm. <laughs> let's try to save it and mm. and even have a have a go at some of those trickier issues about why we sometimes have to kill some animals mm. for conservation mm-hmm. that feral predators are a problem and you've got to work through the, the most humane and effective way to do that and mm. and some of those ethical challenges. Um, yeah, so we, but it's, it's a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you, how much Indigenous involvement is there within yeah. our, our recovery? Yeah, more and more. So we're, we're smack bang in the northern end of the, the Kukuta native title area. So we've, um, doing more work with the Kukuta on, um, mapping Bush Tucker, for instance. So, uh, they manage the three large pastoral stations around us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we coordinate over, controlling feral predators around the reserve um, and we're hoping one day by doing that better that we might have quolls establishing outside the reserve as well uh, and lately we've been working with these two senior ladies Ani Barb and Irene mapping bush tucker on their country because they they grew up on those stations and remember a lot of the places and the plants and uh, and the names for them so we've been working to record that for their people mm-hmm. uh, so that when they have young people coming through there's resources for them to learn from the old ladies mm-hmm. um, and we'd love to plant some bush tucker gardens and have some interpretation around that and so on so yeah it's been really good working with them mm. and learning from them absolutely do you think that our recovery could be a model of how that we can have like indigenous knowledge feeding into science yeah absolutely um and our, one of our partners bush heritage does this really well yeah. already and yeah wherever they can they work on using Indigenous names for, for places and for plants and animals, and, and that's something we want to work up to as well, mm. uh, and, and uh, ultimately be, be doing projects together yeah. uh, and working to the same end. So we, we both want to have healthy country uh, and yeah, and have more people on country. There's this great campaign that the Pew Charitable Trusts run called uh, Country Needs People, mm-hmm. and I, I think that's so true, and it's not just indigenous people that country needs it just needs people on it and caring mm. uh, in their diverse ways so uh, i'm a big fan of people living in remote and regional areas and mm. keeping it real and being on the ground and noticing stuff uh, and caring and, and doing what they can absolutely and i feel like lots of people when they think of like the arid zone and the rangelands they tend to think of it as like 
big vast spaces but really it's such a biodiverse region what do you how do you what do you envision the future and it's a big question the future of the arid zone holds yeah ah well i think i would like to think that it will continue to be a you know a space for diverse communities Mm -hmm. uh that's one thing i i love about remote places is uh it, you get so many different types of people all in the one place and, and because they're small communities, you're much more connected than you might be in a city. Mm-hmm. So uh, in Roxby, which is a mining town, you know, I connect with all sorts of people in the mining industry that I wouldn't have otherwise and you share diverse views um, and, and when you open and chat about these things, I think it's that great space where you can find a common ground mm-hmm. or at least you know, be exposed to, to other views and, and I think that's a real opportunity for conservation particularly because we can step out of our echo chambers mm-hmm. and, and reach other people in different ways and, and experiment with that. So I, I find that really interesting. But, yeah, I hope that the, the rangelands, it's it's going to change mm-hmm. with climate change, but um, I, I hope that we can be open-eyed about those changes and, and ready to face up to them uh, and that people will still want to be living out there and, mm-hmm. and doing what they can for it. It's... It's not all going to go to pot. <laughs> there will be lots of beautiful places and animals and plants yeah. left, uh, but it's going to look different, so we need to be ready for that. Absolutely. Do you find that the communities are more open to having these conversations and like maybe more open to like new innovative changes that will be coming through? Yeah, I, I think so. I think um, we're in our region the drought definitely helped people to sort of see uh, what's coming mm-hmm. and um, and think about ways to address it. So it's built up that energy. Um, you know, on a, as a side topic, I'm really interested in electric vehicles and so on. So we've been playing That's with That's my next those. question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been amazed at how mm. much fascination there is in mm. the technology in its own right, um, mm. quite aside from um, reducing emissions and so on. So yeah, there's huge openness to, to new things and innovations. So I, I think the future's looking pretty good there. Um, and I guess outback people are they're very resourceful and are for trying different stuff. They don't tend to stick in their ways too much. Mm. So, yeah, I think they'll be, they'll be pretty open to change. Yeah, that leads perfectly to my next question about um, I know Arid Recovery has recently started using an electric four-wheel drive on the reserve. How did that come about and I guess how's it going so far? Yeah, um, so uh, my, my partner Hugh organised to get a, a bashed up old Suzuki Ute that we think got flooded in some mudflat in Townsville <laughs> and left at the wreckers and found a chap in Townsville that converts uh, Utes into electric um, machines. So to, pulled out the whole motor, put in electric motors and, and battery packs and it's nothing fancy <laughs> but uh, it, it will go maybe 50 to 70 kilometres in one charge and it's quiet to run. Uh, free to run because we just plug it into the solar panels at the research station there and we're hoping a that it'll be useful for some of the work that we do controlling feral animals because we'll be quieter when we go out hunting um, and also might be useful for monitoring things like bilbies and so on when we go spotlighting for them and then we're hoping it will be a step towards reducing some of the emissions that we produce as a conservation organisation and we mostly use Hiluxes that burn <laughs> diesel and that it's a little way off before there'll be alternatives that can mm. do what a Hilux can do mm. in electric form but um, yeah we want to start with this idea and where we can for short projects and, and little little trips use electric where we can. Yeah and I think the way that we need to 
I guess, mitigate climate change moving forward is finding that integration between approaches that work and especially in arid zones where it's like there is not that access to like there's not like a supercharger around the corner and it's like how we can combine the two to like give us the most I guess the most benefits um how do you think that we could maybe apply more clean technologies within nature to Mm. kind of address our current crisis yeah I mean I I think some things are you know trains are leaving the station that are um we can just jump on Mm. like the use of solar has just proliferated. So mm. most, a large number of remote sites now have gone off using generators and are on solar power and batteries and so on. So that's that's an easy one. Mm. Um, I guess I'm a big fan of walking too. So, <laughs> <laughs> and you notice more stuff when you're walking around yeah. the bush. Mm. Um, so it, as an ecologist, you, I think that's really important that you spend time out there and seeing things mm. uh, and observing and uh, get your brain working. Mm. So, so there's that too. But um, I think there's there's other opportunities. We're talking to people about different applications for drone tech, for um, monitoring, or for um, even potentially for reseeding places that mm. need regenerating. So there's there's lots of opportunities out there. Mm. And uh, the, I think it's important that the conservation sector you know, does look at mitigating their emissions as well as best they can. And and some groups that do savannah burning and so on for instance are already doing that incredibly well and earning carbon credits for their good Mm. work and so on so yeah heaps of opportunities there yeah what advice would you give to someone who is just starting out in ecology or wants to end up in a position like you yourself and have like a career i guess more so in applied ecology i think it's really important that um people starting out in their careers take every opportunity they can to get out to different environments and work with different teams mm-hmm. and spend the time thinking about how workplaces and teams operate too. Yeah. Um, I guess my my experience through uni and, and what I observe from where I am now is there's not a great deal of opportunity for students to to be part of workplaces or to understand that part of life. Mm. It, you know, it is very academic. It is a university. But yeah. I, I do see sometimes when people first start out it's a bit of a shock for them landing in a workplace and, and seeing how things work. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think taking the time to just notice those things when you're out volunteering on a team. So for biology students that go out and go on a survey with someone for a week, um, you know, ask lots of questions and, and notice how people operate. I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I guess going back to what we were talking about before in terms of that rounded experience, you know, I think it's good for people to practice their science communication skills mm. and um yeah well and I, you might be uncomfortable speaking in a podcast for example <laughs> but there's lots of other ways you can play with communicating and or even just observing mm. how other people do it and mm. uh that's where the action happens you need to be able to communicate your research uh and link it to end users ideally work with end users of your research so that you're really well integrated uh and and then things will happen you know, your results will actually turn into real action on the ground. Absolutely. Where do you envision the narrative of arid recovery going? Hmm. Uh, well, I don't... John Reed, who's one of the, the founders, mm. he, at the very beginning, he said that he'd like arid recovery 
to ultimately become redundant, or the fence particularly, <laughs> to become redundant. So that is one vision. Mm. Uh, long way off yet, of mm. course, but um, you know, we, we recognise we're just a little handkerchief of a piece of land mm. on a very big continent, and, and that continent is still full of feral animals and other threats. So ultimately, you know, we'd like to serve that end through research and through trialling things where we can get uh, threatened species and, and ecosystems restored at a, a broad scale. So, um, but on the way there, I suppose we'd like to see the work that we do you know, picked up elsewhere and, and applied and adapted by other conservation managers, by, by governments, by traditional owners and, and so on to fit their, their purposes and their needs and their goals. So, um, we'd like to keep pumping out papers and connecting with new people and, mm. um, yeah. And I guess to put a pragmatic but a positive look at, um, at what climate change is, is going to do mm. and, um, yeah, have some, have some solutions that we can work towards and, and have some hope there. You were speaking to me previously that you were speaking to a artist, having an artist in residence. How do you think that bringing in more of like an art approach will, what do you think that will do? Yeah. Um, yeah, so for the, for the context there where we're working on, mm. Uh, the, the stigmas rats that we mentioned earlier, trying different um, tools for getting them away from the, the heat waves. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're playing with different ceramic structures mm-hmm. and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but from that project, we've made a connection with the jam factory here in Adelaide. And, mm-hmm. and next year, hopefully, we'll be getting an artist in residence program going. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I hope to see out of that is, is just some fresh perspectives mm-hmm. on um, our challenges. Sometimes when you get someone from a very different field, they can have a light bulb moment that, uh, yeah, really changes your view on stuff. So uh, I think that will be a lot of fun as well. <laughs> and the other value too is, is just getting these, these ideas and these challenges to different audiences. Mm-hmm. So there's different people that follow the art world and uh, I think it's, it'll be really interesting for them to see what we're up to. Um, this particular artist we're working with, she's you know, made beautiful ceramic items, teapots and cups and all sorts of things for many years, but now she, she doesn't want to do that anymore. She wants to make things for wildlife. Mm. So all of her art now is um, penguin burrows that are going in to protect penguins from the heat or oh, working yeah. with our stickies and yeah. um, or producing egg-laying structures for spotted handfish in the Derwent River and so on. So I find that really interesting and it, it's inspiring and it, mm. it gets people thinking about new ways of looking at challenges that sometimes can sound really tired oh yeah the extinction crisis oh yeah Yeah. climate change so i'd like it to freshen it up a bit absolutely and that's like i think that's showing that you don't actually have to be a scientist to be you know having a positive impact or creating impactful change that there's these all these transferable skills across many industries that can be applied in this really cool neat way yeah yeah like you know, help bring a bit of positivity to yeah. everything that seems so negatively. And that's why I think Arid Recovery is doing so incredibly well that it's like you look and you're having such a great success with reintroduction. What do you think is, I guess if you had to have a success story out of it, what would you say that would be? Yeah, I think the probably one of the biggest success stories, which is hard to get a handle on, mm-hmm. is the, the capacity building that Aaron's mm-hmm. contributed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all of those students, interns and volunteers and folk that have come through and staff over the years, uh, 
we've, we've been trying to trace where they where they've gone and what they're doing through a little alumni mm. network. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, yeah, there, there's a lot of people doing some really neat stuff in different places, and it's it's kind of intangible, mm. but um, I guess that the ethos that they've picked up and carried with them. Um, and, and some of those experiences will be doing all sorts of good stuff where they are now. So, yeah, I'm hoping we'll be able to continue that. Mm. Something next year that we're getting off the ground is a, a grad program. So we've, we've been running internships for a long time, mm-hmm. which are um, three-month volunteering stints, essentially. We cover people's accommodation and, and living costs, yeah. but they're not on a wage. Mm. Um, they have a great time and we make sure of it. <laughs> but I've always wanted to make that next step up to, to actually be able to employ people on an entry-level wage mm-hmm. out of uni. Mm-hmm. And um, so next year we'll have someone on for six months doing that, working on um, on climate change research. So wow, that's exciting. That is so exciting. Yeah, if I can line up some more funding, we'd like to make it an ongoing thing. Yeah, I guess that's inspiring to me, like as a recent graduate, like there are – know these opportunities out there because it's like when you finish uni and you get out and you just like look and you're like oh yeah I'm not qualified for that I don't have five years of experience to be able to totally get this job or apply for this role yeah yeah I really see that gap mm-hmm. and um you know a lot of our our interns that come through they've some of them have done multiple internships and yeah. still haven't got a, a foot in the door in the conservation sector mm-hmm. and that part of it is there's there's just not quite enough money to mm. have jobs for all those that want to work there. Um, Absolutely. But, yeah, I'm hoping this will be a little stepping stone. I guess my last probably little question is what – if you have, like, just one thing that you wanted to tell the general public about, really, I guess, anything in conservation, what would that message be? Hmm. Yeah, I guess I would say that, um, yeah, conservation is everyone's business – and uh, the the more you get involved, the the more satisfying it is, and the more fun there is to be had. <laughs> and, mm. uh, and I guess we all have an opportunity to connect with something that's close to us, um, or something that we're passionate about. And yeah, there's some great people doing all sorts of work on urban biodiversity. So there's some some wonderful links there. Work with kids on on nature play and so on that's growing, and I, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, and I, I feel there is a there is a fair groundswell mm. here and it's um, taking a different form. Uh, I guess you've probably picked up I'm a very positive person, so <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's, um, there's a lot more uh, opportunity now for, for people to see these, see conservation as something exciting they can get involved in mm-hmm. and less about What's things are all going to pot <laughs> and it's all your fault and, and that sort of negativity it's not motivating no absolutely <laughs> yeah so I, I think any any way people can get involved in something that's positive and fun mm. and inspiring for them mm. is a step in the right direction yeah no I absolutely agree I think that yeah um conservation shouldn't just be this daunting thing where it's like we have to solve everything and fix every problem but more so how we can do little things that are able to help. Do you want to? I know you, you do quite a bit science communication, but like, is that more of a stream you envision? Yeah, uh, going down. I think so. I think we'll um yeah we'll continue to do more of that, and and I guess it's such an evolving space, so mm. so we will be evolving with it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the more we can get the message out to diverse audiences, the better. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's like doing things like this. Yeah, absolutely. First podcast. Ah, amazing. Well, we're so glad to have you. And yeah, thank you so much for your time. 
I really enjoyed it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Tori. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The BSSA podcast is recorded on Ghana land. We celebrate the living connection between the Ghana people and the biodiversity of their ancestral home. This podcast is produced by the Biology Society of South Australia. It is also aired on Radio Adelaide 101.5 on The Green Room. Our intro song is composed and performed by Darcy Whittaker. If you want to listen to more episodes, find them wherever you get your podcasts. One, three, one, two, and hey. Hey. (laughs)